0: Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast. It was my pleasure this week to chat with Diego Gambetta, social scientist and Carlo Alberto chair at the University of Turin. Diego has studied topics as diverse as trust, the mafia and violent extremism. His work has been widely cited around the world. Diego has held past appointments at numerous universities such as Oxford, Cambridge, Columbia and Stanford. In this episode, we chat about trust, distrust and cynicism. Diego explains what it means to trust someone and how distrust is more complex than a mere absence of trust. Whom do we trust and why? Can we trust our trust instincts? Is trust always desirable? Does everyone want to be seen as a trustworthy person? How does the mafia survive despite its distrustful outlook? Finally, Diego asked me to talk a little bit about my research on cynicism. How do we build trust among the most cynical? Are some people just hopelessly distrustful? Hope you enjoy.
1: I am very honored today to be speaking with Professor Diego Gambetta. Before we talk about trust and distrust and all these interesting topics, let me just take a second to thank you for making the time to come on the podcast.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
1: Well, I think we have to get some conceptual clarification first. So trust and to be a trustworthy person, you know, these are terms we use in everyday language all the time. What many trust scholars might point out, however, is that trust and trustworthiness are not exactly the same. Would you agree with this? Or do you think these are the same concepts?
2: No, they, they're usually coupled because they're coupled in real life. You can, you tend to trust people who are trustworthy, or at least you hope you trust people who are trustworthy. But the concepts are very different. and they, It's not so well understood in the literature that, that they differ. they differ in a very fundamental sense, that is that many times when we trust, we do it in our best interest. serve our self-interest when we trust. We may gain from trusting, if trust is well-placed. The fact that you are self-interested, which is usually seen as somewhat in contrast with these two notions, is not. I mean, when you trust, you may do it. You know, I... Could you look after my dog? Could you lend me some money? Whereas trustworthiness has an implication of you doing something you wouldn't necessarily want to do. Hmm. There is an effort which, which you do in order to be trustworthy. So it's the fact that you attempted to not be trustworthy that makes trustworthiness a dilemma for the truster, right? Before deciding whether to trust you or not, I have to decide whether you have within yourself the energy, the motivation, the brain, the honesty to do what it is that is the trust act.
1: Right. So using your example, imagine a friend asks me if I can watch their dog, right? The friend trusts me that I am a good enough person, a trustworthy enough person to take care of their dog and to know how to handle a dog and to make sure... nothing goes wrong so i am the trustworthy person or hopefully i am likely enough to be trustworthy that it is in the interest of my friend to trust me and to place some trust in me and to say okay it's likely enough that eric knows what he's doing that i can trust him with my dog but there's a certain vulnerability about it right because if we had complete perfect certainty that someone else is trustworthy it wouldn't really be trust, right? It would just be assurance. Well, we know that this is going to happen. This person has no other choice but to be good. But there's some certain yes. vulnerability and trust.
2: Yes, there, there's, there, is to have, there has to be some freedom for Eric to defect and eat the dog or <laughs> uh, not look after properly <laughs> to the dog. And there has to be some freedom for me to leave the dog somewhere else or take it with me. When there is freedom of both. Size then trust becomes what allows us to to handle our freedom in that sense. But you can see the asymmetry because for me it's important to find somebody who looks after the dog, and possibly to find somebody who does truly look after the dog. So it's in my best interest to do that if I get it right. Right, whereas it's not necessarily your best interest to spend any time with my dog. Maybe you may be a dog lover. Is not a perfect distinction. You know, there are cases in which being trustworthy is a pleasure. For instance, I don't own a dog, but I could look, happily look after some friend's dog. And, and that would be, could be a pleasure for me. Wouldn't be much of an effort. But if you lend me some money, the idea of returning it, you know, I would be trusted to return you the money at some point. But the idea of returning it is not necessarily my best interest. I could just as well forget about it, or I could uh, run off with your money. When I ask for you, if you charge an interest, that is in your interest to lend me money. That's what banks do, right? Uh, and banks may lend you the money, and it's in their interest if you pay, if you are trustworthy. <laughs> but for you, you know, there may be other options. So there is some
1: tension going
2: on between trust and trustworthiness.
1: The tension seems interesting because every time you read about trust in the literature, the papers usually start off talking about how important trust is for individual functioning, for relationships to stay together, for groups to perform, to coordinate, to cooperate, right? It's the glue that holds society together is a common formulation. And yet, even though trust is so crucial and important, we see distrust everywhere, right? And this tension can explain this because... Maybe we know that for a group as a whole, it would be good if everyone trusted each other. But in any one situation, with a particular interaction partner, in a particular situation, maybe we think the other person is selfish and they do not have our interests at heart. And so it is wise to distrust, right? It is the right thing to distrust. And maybe this is why we have the tension and this can explain why there is so much distrust, even though as a whole, we would be better off trusting. It's the mismatch
2: that... Uh, is a problem. That is, you may end up having, I mean, if you look at it from big pictures, if you look at society and say, what is best and what is not, right? you know, the fact that there is trust among criminals, for instance, is not in the best interest of society. Hmm. And the fact that there is distrust among people who could legally, legitimately, is fruitfully cooperate with each other is a problem. Right? So this is one type of mismatch. That is, you, you may have distrust where you want trust to be present, and you may have trust where you don't want it to be present. So if you, if you can inject distrust among criminals, then society as a whole may, may gain. And if you can inject trust where it would be worth the place, where people may be suspicious or cynical, you know, to come close to your interest, it's a problem, right? You are right. That is, there is a a sort of goodness attached to the word trust. that makes us feel that if we are short of it, but if you look at it in a technical sense, then you know trust may lead people to do bad things, right? To cooperate, to do bad things, and you you can see that in endless gangster movies. That's the case. So, but these are extremes. Most of the time, you you would be right. That better with well placed trust. But sometimes we we just make mistakes and place trust where we shouldn't be
1: right. If trust enables groups to be more effective, then that is in and of itself normatively neutral, right? What does it mean they're more effective at whatever they're doing, right? right? They could be more effective as the mafia and organizing their crime. Right? So but, it's in and of itself we have to understand it's not necessarily a good, even though it is often treated as such. Is that
2: and I mean the The sort of legal, honest society is an advantage, though, because criminals, when they know that they are criminals, have a steeper slope to climb, right? Because I I know that you know that, you know, if I'm prepared to cheat others, to steal from others, then why should I refrain from doing it to you? That's what the answer is.
1: This is where I think trust and distrust can become self-fulfilling to some extent, right? So it's the idea we go about in the world and we look at people and we assume they have a certain fixed level of how trustworthy they are, right? Is this person good or bad? Can I trust them or not? And to some extent that is true. People don't vary that much, but people do vary to some extent in how trustworthy they are, depending on the context, depending on how they are treated. And it seems like there is some work, and I would love to hear your take on this body of work, that this can be self-fulfilling. So if someone places trust in me, that is a gift in some sense, right? It means that this person is saying, well, Eric, I think you are a good enough person that you can do whatever it is I think you can do, right? It's a kind of a compliment, whereas distrust is a little bit of an insult, right? It's to say, I think you're a bad person or you're bad enough that I can't trust you. Trust is not just something that is risky for the truster. It is something that has an emotional impact on the trustee, right? And I noticed this in my PhD program uh, here at Stanford where I got admitted and I was like, I don't know how to do research really i'm still learning right i'm being trained and yet i had um, all the different resources and responsibilities that the department trusted me with and in a sense maybe they should not have trusted me with this because i was not entirely sure what i'm doing yet but just to be trusted so much made me think oh god i want to live up to the standard right i don't want to disappoint the department i don't want to disappoint my advisor and all these people and so being trusted can actually make you more trustworthy because you want to earn the trust and make sure that you deserve it and that other people see that you deserve it and so I wonder what you think about this line of reasoning that trust can really be self-fulfilling and similar for distrust sometimes
2: to reason we may go to extreme and we may think of a situation in which two people meet and they will never meet again and in that case there is no you can behave in any way you want it may have no effect but this is not how the world works we tend to think of our relation as, as a flaw of several relations, right? And if, so if we are trusted and we fail the trust, that may reflect badly on us for future relations. So in that sense, it can be a self-fulfilling, right? If I tell you, okay, there is no way you're going to be trustworthy, then what's the advantage for you to be trustworthy? But right? you lose any advantage to behave well? Because I already assume you wouldn't be, even if you might be. So it takes a very extreme negative position to think people, unless they have wronged you in the past, unless you have very good evidence that they have been wronging other people, then it takes, um, I would have to be extreme to think that, right? So placing trust helps others to find an extra motive to be trustworthy. Right? It's as if we feel a sense of uh, pride, or we have a kind of—you know—I don't like the word—but reputational capital that we don't want to squander. So that gives you a reason, which is loosely self interested if you want to be trustworthy. You know? So we go back to, to somewhat qualifying what I started off by saying: you know, to be trustworthy, you need not to be safe, but sometimes you may invest in something more intangible, which is also the perception of yourself. Yeah, you know, it is good
1: I, to be seen as a good person, right? It, it is, is a lot good. of work to send signals that you are a good person. You have to surpass your self-interest in the moment. But in the long yeah. run, if the community thinks of you as a good person, they will give you more resources. They will come to you for help. They will help you when you need help, right? So there's a lot of long-term benefits that come from being a good person, from being seen as a trustworthy prison.
2: That, however, needs to be qualified by the kind of environment where you move. Mm. So if you end up in prison, they probably gain for you to be seen as a not such a good person, because then the the basic line is, you know, we take advantage of it. So in a sense, we already have the luck of living in a biased, in, in a good, good biased society, biased towards the fact that we gain by being good. So that means that goodness is rewarded to some extent. And we internalize that because that's kind of probably typical state of affair, but that's not true everywhere. So that's what is interesting. One reason why I became interested in studying criminals is precisely because they pose such a challenge. So why should criminal trust each other? Why should you, what do you gain by being good?
1: And you have written about the dynamics of trust and distrust in criminals or you know, in the mafia and different groups. And it's really one takeaway could be: well, it is complicated, right? In a sense, you are saying yeah. you don't want to signal that you are a good, naive person who's trusting everyone who's always ready to be taken advantage of by other people, right? You want to be seen as someone who can stand their ground, who can defend themselves. But at the same time, trust can mean many things, right? I trust someone to be a good person, but I can also trust someone to be competent, to know what they are doing. And in many situations in the mafia, you want to be seen as someone who knows what they are doing and to have integrity, to do what you say you are going to do, right? To not be a hypocrite, to stand by your word. And there's still Mm. honor in that among thieves, right? Which doesn't make theft honorable, as the saying goes. But these are really complicated dynamics where it's not like society at large. Everyone trusts each other, and then in these groups, no one trusts each other. It's, it's it's much more complicated, and it's much more rich in the psychology underlying these dynamics. Yes, and there is a useful distinction to be
2: made between an enforcer who makes sure that exchanges exchanges between people that he, usually he's rather than she's protects. Right, monsters may make sure that people trade fairly with each other, and If somebody cheats you, you can go to the mobster, and the mobster may punish the guy who cheats you if you were protected by by the mobster. However, that has an interesting consequence, namely that if you and I trade something, and I think that you behave well, I don't infer that you behave well because you're good-hearted, well-motivated keen to gain a reputation. I only infer that you behave well because you know, don't cheat. It's going to come after you if you don't. Mm-hmm. Right? So that, that is a tremendously corrosive effect of having a mafia in a society because it means there is no cumulative effect of your abductions. They're stunted. When a mafia may enforce exchanges that look trustworthy and honest, but simply because there is a threat of violence if they don't. So it becomes a, a sad place where you you know good action are not rewarded. It is simply that bad action are punished. That's the, the situation. Then there is the other side: is how do people who do that as a job most of themselves trust each other? That's a, a different story. That's more uh, more complicated.
1: It is <laughs> like my friend who would only ever trust me with their dog if I give my friend my cat at the same time as assurance that if you do something bad to my dog, I am going to eat your cat or something like that, right? It's a very, (laughs) that would be a very low level of trust. I guess it's better than completely distrusting me. But for a pre-existing friendship where you would think there is some level of trust, otherwise we wouldn't be friends. It's a signal that I can't actually trust you, right? It's this undermining of trust by supervision and control.
2: Yeah, that's what, what you say is interesting. It epitomizes the hostage, I know you behave because I give you, a, you know, you give me a hostage, right? So I will put the lock on your bike, and if if I find my dog half eaten by you, you're, mm-hmm. you're not gonna see your back, right? So <laughs> I, so that's the story. And hostages used to be very common as a way of exchanging between warlords and feudal characters. They have died out. Of a bit in the use, but still they, they're used in, in the criminal world. So there are stories of Southern Italian masters placing valuable people in Colombia who the Colombian drug dealers would know the existence of and they could retaliate against them. Should a load of narcotics not be paid or should something happen that they think is a, a, a distrustful act? So giving hostages is still somewhat. But Thomas Schenning said that by the time that uh, we have long-distance weapons, we all become hostages. Mm. Uh, so that would be one reason why hostages have gone out of fashion.
1: <laughs> Which could be an improvement over some sort of Hobbesian state of warfare where everyone tries to kill each other. But it's certainly a downgrade, so to say from a world where everyone trusts each other and genuinely trusts each other. And there's no, what is so sad about this logic is that it leaves no room to show that there is genuine trust to be had, right? If my friend, again, going back to this example, mm-hmm. trust me with her dog, but has my cat at the same time, my friend will think, oh, Eric only took care of my dog because he cares about his cat, Right? But maybe I would have taken care of his dog anyways, without any vested self-interest, just because I don't want to hurt the dog and I care about my friend, right? But there's no way to find out about this in this complicated yes. dynamic.
2: It reduces the amount of traits about Eric that you can learn. You don't learn in a situation like you learn very little. At most, you learn that he cares about his cats or he cares about his dogs, but you don't learn about his motivation to help his friends. Incidentally, that's another asymmetry, an interesting asymmetry is that if you start by distrusting, if you start by trusting, you may be wrong. And if you're wrong, you learn. And if you're right, you learn too, right? But if you distrust, you don't learn anything. Yes. So that's a very serious asymmetry, which would explain why distrust may tend to, why trust is fragile, but why trust is very stable and stays like that and there is no i mean sometimes you know there, there is quite a lot of literature for instance there shocks, external catastrophes earthquakes, volcanoes, pandemics make people more cooperative, more loyal more trusting more inclined to look after each other probably we need shocks like that to get out of distrust ruts, you know when we
1: all I, I agree with this. So if my friend never gives me an opportunity to take care of their dog, they will never find out if I would have been a good enough person, right? And this really conflicts with uh, how distrustful people oftentimes portray themselves, which is as wise for anticipating how horrible people are going to be, right? I know people are going to be horrible. Therefore, I never trust them. Uh, look at me. I understand humanity. I understand what people are like when actually they have no data for their hypotheses, it's just that they cannot get feedback that falsifies their theories, right? But still we have the cynical wisdom that we that we allude to, right? These people understand what people are really like, whereas the rest of us are wearing rose-colored glasses. And of course you can be naive and you can be trusting too much. There's so many examples of this, right? But if you really want to understand how to trust people, you have to have data, right? You have to interact with people. You have to be out there and get more information on who is trustworthy and who's not. And if you're just straight or distrustful in the beginning, you never get that data.
2: On who and also on
1: what kind
2: of signs they may give that may help you to decide whether they are trustworthy or not. Because, I mean, one, one of the things I I did, my late colleague, Michael Backer was to link the theory of trust to the theory of signals. Mm-hmm. And, and this is because if you can read, I mean, that's another bias of the literature is that very seldom we start by looking at the dilemma of the truster. We tend to naturally shift into the shoes of the truster. And if we shift in the shoes of the trustee, we notice that often trustee want to be trusted because they may gain from that. It may be in their best interest to be trusted. Right? So, Again, correcting a bit where I started. So I may want to be, I want the bank to believe that I return returned. I want you to believe that I would be a faithful partner for you in, in the business that we start. And so if you shift the dilemma of the trust to what Signal could convince the trust that she can trust, then you are in the domain of signaling theory. Right? So if I offer you a drink, which unfortunately in this type of communication I cannot do, you may think, wow, hmm, is this guy of you know, poison my drink? If I drink from the chalice that, I, that you also drink, you may believe that that's a strong signal that I'm telling the truth because it assumes that I don't want to poison myself. Sometimes people do want to poison themselves, but very rarely. So that's a strong signal. In that case, you can trust the drink that I'm offering. Which, incidentally, makes me want to say that to reason about trust, is often important to know what you are trusted about. In this case, you're trusted about to give me a non poison drink. And that calls for certain signals to persuade. And a bank may look at your credit history and see whether previous loans you have been paid back. And those are signals that You can be trusted again. Once you have these strong signals in your hand, then deciding whether to trust or not is true.
1: So we have talked about very distrustful individuals and groups. And the question is, how can genuine trust be built here? And what you're suggesting is, well, the trustees can send very strong signals of them being trustworthy. While that is right, I wonder if that puts all the responsibility on the trustees and leaves the In the right for just suspecting everyone of everything all the time. And I wonder, mm-hmm. this is part of what I'm trying to do in my research, as you asked about. There is a way to appeal to the truster and to say, well, your decision to trust or to distrust has an impact on the other person and will make them feel a certain way. There's a certain mm-hmm. responsibility you have to behave in one way or another, right? Again, trust is a gift and distrust is an insult. And really, Because what is so vicious about this extreme form of distrust is that it is very hard to falsify, right? Even in this scenario where you take a drink from, you know, the drink you are offering me, so I know it's not poison. I might say, well, he's just doing that now. but What about the second? You are just doing that right now, just so I trust you. And then the next time, it's very hard for me to trust her to falsify my distrust. Because I can always attribute motives in a different way. Because we're talking about motives, not behavior. In terms of trustworthiness, in terms of, can I trust you? And so I wonder if there's any responsibility that we can put on the truster for realizing, okay, my theory is unfalsifiable. I am not giving people a shot. I am being mean to people. Maybe this brings out their meanness towards me. Yes, the,
2: you know, I, I know that your interest is in, uh, in cynicism. I don't know how how you, you define cynicism, but there's something frozen about it, something that... Repeats itself. It's a non learning exercise. So I was thinking whether it really is some kind of counter example to trust or distrust. You just are stuck there. So it's a state of the mind or your personality rather than. So the, the link with, with trust, it, it's somewhat, uh, is you distrust people beyond necessity.
1: Mm-hmm. Hmm? Mm-hmm. Want to no, distrust some people to... some people in some situations, right? So distrust, situational distrust makes perfect sense in many situations. Cynicism exactly. is really the more generalized attitude of people can never be trusted, right? People are exactly. always, only ever motivated by self-interest. And that is just right. exactly. all-encompassing and it doesn't allow to be falsified. Hmm. And so I wonder if for those people, it's, it's, it's really hard to say, well, other people just have to send stronger signals that they are a good person. There, there,
2: there is... Something more, that is, that even uh, in the way a cynic perceives self interest is wrong. <laughs> in the sense that self interest can be quite a broad family. As we discussed before, I may want to have a good reputation. I'm, it may be self interest, but on the other hand, there the is self interest and self interest. There is one which thinks narrowly about. I said, but there is one that thinks more well, broadly. Maybe I have a, a, a good glow around me if I feel right. How do you define that? self interest, you don't know. So it's a very mean description of self interest, not just self interest. No, I, I think so. I was thinking about that. You know, you got me thinking about cynicism and trust, which I hadn't thought before. So it, I don't know. It, you Yeah, see I,
1: I like this because you might say, well, this person is self-interested because they psychopathically exploit others to their own advantage and try to climb up the power hierarchy and, you know, rape people and do all kinds of horrible things. And obviously that is self-interest in the most extreme form, right? But then there are people who are doing other people a favor, trying to be nice to their friend by watching their dog, and they get a little bit of pleasure out of it themselves right? And the yeah. cynic would be like, both of these are self interest right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter. People are corrupt. It's just not, even if all of it has some sort of degree of self-interest and some kind of self-interest, we can't equate these different kinds as the same and equally horrible level of self-interest. Yes,
2: because the cynicism uh, is crippling because you end up not wanting ever to be vulnerable to anybody. No? And Whereas, you can make yourself somewhat vulnerable to people, not necessarily if they're saints, right? Even if they're fairly normal people with gray areas and shiny ones at the same time. So, a cynic lacks a subtlety, lacks a flexibility, lacks... a sense that the world is complex.
1: Yeah, and there's no responsibility for bringing out the self-interest in others i was talking to a friend last week and he said something interesting he said every time i think the world is mean and horrible i ask myself is the world actually mean and horrible or am i just being a horrible person and i bring this out in other people right if i'm the kind of person who's always cynical who always thinks everyone is horrible and you know I will not be fun to be around. And so people around me will yeah. be like, oh, you're horrible. <laughs> but I don't yeah. see that. I'm just like, yeah, see, people are horrible. People are selfish. Exactly as I predicted.
2: Yeah, so that that shows that also distrust is self-fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the sense that you may not think twice before pinching the wallet from his backpack because he said, well, he thinks I am dishonest anyway, so who cares? <laughs> I may just yeah. as well do it. <laughs> so there is some self fulfillingness and so it's quite probable that uh, a world populated by cynics uh, just generates yet more reason to to drift in, in that direction. But so
1: the interesting question is how do you become
2: a cynic? No.
1: Well, a common explanation it, could be: uh, well, someone betrayed your trust really horribly. You have been traumatized from that. And now you have learned, I can never trust anyone again, right? My partner cheated on me. Therefore, I can never trust people again. I will never be in a relationship again. People are horrible. You just overgeneralize in this kind of coping mechanism, which I think is one common and maybe more common explanation. Another explanation is that cynicism is invoked after the fact to license your own selfishness, right? So the people who are most cynical are oftentimes the Machiavellian narcissistic psychopaths. And this is really something where I'm curious about your feedback because you've studied criminals and, and the mafia and lots of you know, people who will be high on the dark triad or higher on average than the you know, population. It seems like oftentimes their distrust is not just rational in that they are in a distrustful environment surrounded by other untrustworthy people. These people are also looking for an excuse. Some of them, obviously not all criminals. Some of them are looking for an excuse to just do whatever they want to do. And a convenient excuse is to say, well, people are just horrible. So why should I be any better? So,
2: in the first case, it would be you would be nursing a wound that doesn't heal. Hmm. Your first explanation, right? You mm-hmm. have been wounded so badly, and you are unable to heal that wound, and you, and this wound festers around you. The second case is more tricky because in a sense it is a way out of having a bad view of yourself. saying I am this way because it's your fault, not mine. So it's, it's a more complicated affair. Let me throw a, a spanner in your wheel and shift to social sciences rather than psychological and to the notion of the equilibrium or, or something like that. You know, my wife comes from southern Italy. Southern Italy is not Renown for people trusting each other at all. And there are plenty of people still. But there is something more to it. I I give you a stunning example. When you do something generous to people, to strangers, let's, let's put this strangers. Let's talk about the society which strangers. Suppose I let people cross on the zebra cross. Or when there is a queue of cars, I leave a gap so that people coming in the other direction can fit in and turn. Hmm? Mm-hmm. In the UK, where I live for 30 years, ago, in the north of Italy, often, not always, but often, people thank you because they recognize that there was an act of kindness. Hmm? In the south, they think you, your foot got stuck under the accelerator. So mm-hmm. they give an explanation that doesn't contemplate Your act of generosity. So, what do I conclude from this? Is that there are also situations which is not your psychology, but is something else that makes you unable to contemplate good motives. So you accept it. In fact, they. they, they, So if most people don't do that, and then somebody does, then it could be. It should be an
1: axe. It could be an axe. Sounds like confirmation bias, sure. as we psychologists would call it, right? There's nothing that can falsify your theory. Just, I am convinced there is no genuine selflessness, no genuine kindness in the world. And therefore, when I am confronted with genuine kindness, I'm just like, no, 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 that's actually. I, ex-
2: I explain it away, but these these people are not necessarily cynic. Is that there's a world around them in which these motives are really. Ripped away, they're taken out of the picture. So it's not, they, they wouldn't even understand what you're talking about because there isn't a solid notion of being kind to strangers.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's more uh, like a norm of so, cynicism, right? It's a higher so you, level. See, if you see me through the car and say, ah, you know,
2: you're the cousin of, of your, I'm the cousin of your wife, so hi, ciao. No, this is, uh, Between friends, between acquaintances, between kids. But there is no such thing as kindness outside of that. So the transition between a society of this type and a society in which strangers can cooperate is one of, say, one of the most interesting challenges for us to
1: unpack. I I agree. And I wonder to what extent people can be completely ignorant of the fact that kindness exists because you might say that evolutionarily we have evolved to detect kindness because it is so important and to be kind ourselves to some extent, right? So I have seen some work that in such groups where everyone is distrustful and everyone just attributes everything to self-interest all the time, people still have impulses of kindness where they want to do something kind for other people and not just for themselves, but they suppress them because they don't want to be seen as naive, right? As the only sucker. So I wonder oh, if people can still recognize the kindness in themselves and say, "Okay, it is there. I see. I don't see it in other people, and people would blame me for being stupid and naive. So I'm going to suppress it. But it's still there, right? And it's still a force that they have some insight into.
2: It. The thing is, it's connected also to the tendency of never apologizing. Why do I think that? I don't know. But it's also another trait that you find in the South. Apologies means you recognize a mistake. You, you I don't know. So it's you, a
1: form of uh, trust restoration, right?
2: It, it is. And uh, if there is no trust to be restored, then why should I apologize?
1: And it would show that you're weak, yeah. right? For, for giving like? someone and admitting a mistake. And Why would you do yeah. that?
2: Are you going to do any ethnography or
1: what's your empirical uh, work? What are you I, planning? I, I, I would love yeah. if I got to a point where I could do ethnography at some point. Um, right now I am running trust games online just to have a very basic understanding of how trust manifests and how different interventions could work to restore trust. But that is on, you know, online participants in the U.S. That's very different from, um, the most extreme form of trust intervention in really distrustful environments. And I really wonder if you know, appealing to people's sense of responsibility, that their theories are unfalsifiable, that there's a certain self-fulfilling nature to trust and distrust. These different, you know, intervention mindsets that one could have. The people who benefit the most from them would be people in such highly distrustful groups. But they might also be the ones who are the least likely to listen to these interventions and to actually care about it, right? Um And so I wonder who's really benefiting and what is a target group for these kinds of different mindset shifts? Is it really the people who are already trusting sometimes, but could trust a little bit more? Or is it the people who never trust at all, who have the most to gain, but are the least likely to listen?
2: So you, you're you thinking of doing it experimentally? mm mm-hmm. I was thinking that in many trust experiments that I have seen, a few I've run myself, Mm. you do see, and if you repeat the interaction, if you don't do just a one-shot interaction, decide whether you want to lend money or not, and decide whether you want to return the money or not, but you have a sequence, you can see that there are people who change their strategy from one shot to, to the other, but there are people who never change. Mm-hmm. And the, and you may do a meta-analysis of those who never change. And I think that most research focuses on those that do something. But maybe there is something to be gained by squeezing something from experimenting with mm-hmm. There are people who change and there are, they are more frequent. There are people who trust all the times, but they are very, very, very few. And there are people who don't trust all the times and there are a little bit more larger groups. So those, those would be the guys that you know, you should you could uh, pick up and do something else with them. You know? These are your your guys. The, the, the stubborn distrustful
1: grumpy groups. You know? It would uh, be wonderful to have qualitative research on this and just to ask them why are you so grumpy? Why are you so distrustful? Are you, um, is it just a strategy in this particular experiment? Is it just a general, you know, life strategy that you have uh, for how you approach other people in everyday life? What is going on there? And there seem to be different explanations, as we alluded to. But if if you think of these individuals, what what comes to your mind in terms of restoring trust you, in any way to the extent that we want?
2: But if you, if you run several. Uh, Quick experiment. You may be able to isolate a sample of people like that, and then you may you may act on them. But for instance, are they totally unresponsive? I mean, if you offer them bigger rewards, would they relent? If you uh, if you tell them something about their partner, you know, with whom they're matched in, in the experiment in the game, would they relent? Would they be more lenient with certain types of people? Uh, or would they simply just stick to their guns and continue not to, right? So you could, but you, you need to isolate these guys, right? Because if you, if you pick a sample of ordinary people, you
1: won't have that many.
2: You need to, you know, it could be 10, 15%, something of that all.
1: Yeah. And most of the manipulations in the trust game look at the whole population, right? As you're alluding to, if your partner is anonymous, you tend to send over less money than if you have any specific information on who you are dealing with. But that is just for people in general, you know. (laughs) Maybe this, you know, people who are very distrustful to begin with, they don't care,
2: right? You can't really put an ad. You can't say, put an ad and say, look, if you want, if you're completely distrustful, (laughs) Right to be, right? They won't. They will By by the definitions, <laughs> so you have to find a way to sort them out. indirectly.
1: I have seen this cartoon a while ago where someone was standing on a podium holding up a sign that was saying "Cynics of the world, unite!" and all the cynics around him were like, "What's up with you? What is your problem? What is your agenda?" It's just a really hard community. To it's not a community, right? <laughs> These are just isolated individuals who all distrust each other and everyone else. Um, And, and well, I want to be mindful of your time. uh, And I know that we are uh, going over time at this point, but I just generally really appreciate this conversation. And I'm curious to hear any other thoughts you have thinking about these hyper distrustful cynical individuals on an individual level, on a structural level, any ideas that you have about how do we make them more trusting? How do we, because then, again, you know, trust isn't always a good thing. You don't want to be too normative and too intervening. It seems mm-hmm. like it's having all kinds of negative effects for them as individuals, as a group. How would you approach restoring trust in a community like this? Well, it's more your your you know
2: therapy seems to be called for you in some ways. in the way you know if you have a a, a festering wound that you cannot heal. As a social scientist, I don't really know. Uh, what to tell you? Or if you if you're just playing games with yourself and justifying your other traits of your character uh, or other behavior that you have by disparaging people, that seems to be more of a therapeutic uh, line of work than social science. Right? Uh, So I I am at a loss in that regard to to tell you something of value, I suspect. Um, But I do
1: like the logic behind it, right? It's to realize that the betrayal that you have experienced should not be generalized to everything else that is happening in your life and to everyone else, right? In a sense, the betrayal is winning over you, right? And if your partner betrayed you, and therefore you will never have a relationship again, in a sense, your partner is still winning, right? Because they have ruined not just your relationship, but your life, and any other relationship you could have had, right? And so there's some sort of... Refra- but again, I, I'm far from being a clinical mm-hmm. psychologist myself, but um, it's interesting to think about these ideas from a social science perspective.
2: But it seems, The social science perspective would be, look at the beliefs. What exactly is it that people believe or they believe that they believe mm-hmm. in this case? Uh, and that's so not easy, but they may have uh, nursed wrong beliefs, right? The, you know, inferring from one betrayal. That's uh, very common. I mean, we we see it n- nowadays uh, among people who are opposed to vaccination huh. against uh, COVID. Then they see one case of a uh, vaccinated people. Gets infected, and they infer the vaccine don't work. So you know, if if I could have total power on people's mind for an hour, I would probably teach them some elementary probability reasoning, right? Mm-hmm. Which people seem to have difficulties doing. I I discovered that being a social scientist of a quantitative disposition, you can't you don't think very much that people, but it's very difficult to
1: teach people. So, they may end up with their own belief. I wonder if it is just beliefs or identity, right? So, there's this work on people who believe in conspiracies, where if you believe in one conspiracy, you are more likely to believe in all sorts of other conspiracies, right? And you can get to logical paradoxes here, where the more likely you are to think that Princess Diana actually um, was killed, as opposed to had a car accident, the more likely you are to believe that she is still alive right? <laughs> Two different conspiracies that cannot be true at the same time, right? But it's, it's, it's not the reasoning. It's, it's really the underlying identity of, I am someone who understands how the world works while everyone else is deluded, right? And I have some, some what I call pieces of evidence, my research that I've done, quote unquote, that really gives me this superior identity. So how about fear?
2: The people I know who are prone to conspiracy seems to be very afraid so, a conspiracy rationalizes ignorance, doubt uh you know how the hell should I know how whether you know. so so people that need closure uh, tend to lack uh, they need desperately yeah. pointed uncertainty destabilizes them so fear fear may be related to uh, se you're afraid of others
1: yes, I uh, think that's that's another reasoning flaw, so to say. To trust people is to make yourself vulnerable, and you could fear that the other person will betray your trust. The problem with that is that distrust is not the safe option, because there's loss on both sides. You should also be afraid of what you lose out if you don't ever trust. But we don't really think about it this way, right? we just like, trust is risky, but distrust is safe. Well, you are safe to lose all kinds of different uh, relationships. And meaningful connections so there's loss on both sides that you should be afraid of or could be afraid of what about
2: running some experiment and um, having people some control treatment group read things that may generate certain emotions rather than than others and see Hmm. whether these emotions increase the number of stubborn distrusting people what emotions is, is driving the scene Mm-hmm. Because you no, know, cynic, cynicism is a description of a state, but I wonder whether how many components there are in, the, in that. Is a he's, he's a highly complex construct. If you start unpacking, right? no, this is yes, state.
1: yes, yes, and fear and stress play mm-hmm. into this. There is some work that people who are very cynical for the whole life tend to die earlier of heart attacks because they're just so stressed out and angry all the time, right? Anger is another, such as <laughs> an abstract belief system. Something else that I have found in a nationally representative sample of Americans is that there is a correlation between cynicism and contempt at 0.45, which is quite high, right? So it's not just that cynicism is this anxious response to, you know, you know, someone will betray me and that would be horrible. There's also a certain pleasure in cynicism where it's like, oh, I get to look down on people because I think people are horrible. People tend to think that they themselves are pretty good. Well, that logically leads to the conclusion that you are better than other people. And that's a convenient Mm -hmm. belief to have as well. One conjecture that I
2: I was never able to to test uh, yet, at least on, on Southern Italy, is that people, you know, there is this saying, at least in Nordic countries, That, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Mm -hmm. And, and this is a, is a very intelligent saying because it allows you to test. You try. Mm -hmm. And then you decide. I, my impression is that in the South, the cost of betrayal is perceived as being so high that is fool me once, shame on me. You don't really have, that's the perception. So, that would be would connect psychology and sociology if you will, because they may be right in the sense that if there is no reliable redress to wrong that you receive, if you can't trust the law, if you cannot trust the state, if you cannot trust the local courts, if, you, if it takes 10, 10 years before you get a, a decision, every wrong that you receive, is on you to sort out, right?
1: Yes, yes. So highly cynical well, you, people would say there, there is a very high cost to betrayal. And I would add, there's very little benefit to return trust, right? It's just like, oh God, I have one more friend or one more successful interaction. Who cares about that, right? Who needs people? Why are social relations important at all? And there's a certain devaluation of the impact, of the positive impact that social relations have on us.
2: But the, the question is,
1: suppose you, trans,
2: you transport uh, some of those who, who have this belief in a world in which redress is a common good, is a public good, is the law. Hmm? Would they change? So that's an answer to your question. What would make you change? Well, insofar as what appears to be cynicism is not uh, a petrified trait of your character, but he is a response to a special environment. Yes. Then, if you change the environment and you flag that that's what you do, then you may have an an effect. So you should see. uh,
1: I have seen this paper the other day that argued that trust is partly heritable, distrust is not. Right. That there is some genetic component to trust 20, 30% to how trusting you are, but how much mm-hmm. you distrust other has barely any um, genetic component to it, which is kind of rare. And then the question right. is, well, where does our distrust come from? Is it our, you know, shared environment with our family and how we are raised or our non-shared environment? Just things that happen. And it's mostly really the non-shared environment that predicts how distrustful we are, which speaks to your idea, right? That it's like, The environment that makes us cynical, as opposed to this is just who we are, and there's nothing that can be done about it.
2: Still, if you think about it, if we are right to say that by being distrustful you don't learn, then if your parents tell you trust no one, and if you just follow them half of the times, you will not learn as much. Mm -hmm. So very, I mean, I'm not. I would like to to read where they they get this evidence from because my my instinct is, is exactly the opposite that distrust mm-hmm. is a heritable. At least mm-hmm. I don't mean genetically, I mean from mm-hmm. your previous generation.
1: Yeah. Some some influence mm-hmm. of that for sure. And I'm sure the authors acknowledge it, right? If your parents shield you from ever trusting anyone because they frame it as a risky, stupid, naive decision to trust people, then of course as a you know naive child, um you don't want to be even more naive. You learn that, you adopt those beliefs. And then that's a really problematic mindset to instill in kids, especially if they get to live up, uh, live and grow up in a more secure environment than maybe you as the parents were. Maybe your beliefs were adapted to some extent, right? But if you have kids who are growing up in a safer, more secure uh, environment surrounded by people who are actually more trustworthy, then maybe they should have different beliefs and a different approach to trust.
2: Sure. Well, next time I'm in Stanford, I'll give you my dog after. <laughs> anyway, it's very nice uh, talking to you.
0: Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode, or if you have any other suggestions for future guests or topics for the podcast. You can reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsychpod. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere so more people can find us. Thank you so much.